Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Welcome to the podcast. Ben Hurley here from the ACC's Mad Monday podcast. If you are a rugby league fan, then make sure you check out the ACC's Mad Monday podcast, available now on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Kia ora, James McConey here, co-host of the ACC's Agenda podcast. If you're a fan of topical sports discussion and downstairs analysis, then make sure you check out the ACC's Agenda podcast. Now Radio Voice, available now on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. So cynical So you're a tough guy Like you're really rough guy Just can't get enough guy Just always a puff guy I'm that bad type Make your mama sad type Make your girlfriend mad type Might seduce your dad type I'm the bad guy Duh a very good afternoon, New Zealand. Welcome into the country. Billy Eilish there to kick us off. Rowena Duncan, Tess Prentice in the studio with you. Jamie Mackay in Queenstown for the week. It is the first anniversary of his best mate's death today. Billy Mackay, we are thinking of the entire Mackay family. I know they're making their way to the cemetery right now. So we've got a, Billy, a bit of Billy songs uh, on the show today. I did say we could maybe kick off with Only the Good Die Young by Billy Idol. But even for my warped sense of humour, I thought that one might be a little bit inappropriate. We'll have that a bit later in the hour. And speaking of the hour, we've got a pretty action-packed one for you as well. Cameron Bagri in independent economist who made a few headlines today. He is waiting on hold. We'll find out uh, what's going to happen to the economy when we finally open up and also what is happening with interest rates plus why he's been making headlines. Tim Myers and Smiley Barrett, we've got our Norwood panel. We missed them on Friday where we'll catch them today. Talk a bit of footy, talk a bit of farm machinery and a bit of breaking off the farm as well. That's going to be a bit of a theme on today's show. We're also going to chat to Amber Carpenter, a South Auckland dairy farmer who made the transition from fashion to farming. Fashion, darling. Not something you hear too much of, but she's got some really, really good tips on how to get through. They've been in lockdown for a tremendous amount of time, how she's managing to get herself, her family and their staff, everyone through all that. Emma Buchanan, we missed her yesterday. She is the Waipukuro-based founder of Sota Farm Plans, uh, named as only the second rural recipient of a SHEEO loan. We'll find out where her idea stemmed from. And we're going to catch Barbara Kuriga as well, National Party's agriculture spokesperson. Find out if she thinks Judith Collins will still be leader of the National Party by Christmas. But first of all, let's talk to Cameron Bagri from Bagri Economics. And Cameron, Cameron, uh, you have been making headlines today. You called out the National Party for having an historical mindset. Is that a bit harsh? Good afternoon. No, I don't think it is harsh. I think it's pretty well, yeah. Straight down the middle in regard to what's what's going on. I guess I'll sit back and I had a chat to Thomas one day, and then, lo and behold, it appears in the, in the media with a, a bit of a juicy headline. But <laughs> my, my view is that look, New Zealand is stronger when we've got two mainstream political parties that are sort of going toe-to-toe. 
because what it does is that it drives better debate, it drives better contestability, better ideas and, and better accountability. Now, it doesn't matter whether you talk to people or you just look at the polls, you know, we don't have that sort of toe-to-toe in regard to what's going on there across New Zealand at the moment. How do you feel uh, politically? What needs to happen for us to, to get through this? Well, an awful lot. Well, the, the immediate attention is obviously what's going on with, with COVID, and the reality is we do need to open up, but we need to open up with a pretty good risk management framework around it. And, and unfortunately, we're going to see some pretty tough trade-offs over the coming six months because you know, we need to open the economy up. It has been bludgeoned, particularly in Auckland. Society's had enough. But there are going to be health challenges on the other side. You know, case numbers now are pretty well irrelevant. You know, the big story here is hospitalisations and ICU numbers, these sort of things. But if I sit back there and think about it a little bit more broadly, you know, I'm thinking about where is New Zealand going to be five to ten years down the track? You know, we tend to talk an awful lot about demand, whether we're spending, whether we're buying houses. The most important line is actually supply. It's the ability to meet demand. Yeah, it's the productivity, the availability, the resources, getting staff, these sort of things. Yeah, that that, that defines your living standards over a five to ten year period. And here's the big thing that I'm worried about at the moment is that I think that economic base is being gradually whittled away, which sort of worries me. Where is New Zealand going to be ten to five to ten years down the track? We've had the sugar candy economics, we've had the short term hit. Uh, that was needed. It was the right policy response. But now the hard year, I think, starts setting a bit of a plan for the next five to ten years. Are there going to be businesses who don't make it through this? Are there going to be less companies fighting for our money? Or do you think we will actually see people able to survive it? Well, I, I hope so. But with each passing day, you know, the stories particularly coming out of Auckland are becoming a little bit more pressing in regard to the first lead. If you look at it at the moment, the December quarter is the most important quarter of the year for an awful lot of business in certain sectors to make some money because it sets them up for those slow months in the early part of the year. There's a very strong seasonal pattern. What we're seeing at the moment is that, look, pretty well every indicator is well below where it was 12 months ago. Glass are full in the next year, 24 hours. We're going to see a little bit of pent-up demand. People are going to rush out and go to the mall and spend a little bit of money. But I don't think it's going to be a lot. You know, for a lot of firms, you know, they're still going to be making less money than what they were 12 months ago. Now, the good news story is that we've got real good momentum heading into this. Yeah, but in dealing with the enduring impact of COVID, there's a country mile away from eliminating the goddamn thing. Yeah, and we need to think very carefully about yeah, how we're going to be opening up. Yeah, what are those enduring impacts going to be? Some people are not going to be rushing back to the mall. You know, some people, some people are. Yeah, so you put a pretty simple sort of framework. Look, if we're taking hits on an enduring basis from COVID to maintain our same living standards, we've got to unlock opportunities on the other side. And these are some of the hard discussions that we need to get our heads around in 2022. How tough is it on restaurants, on cafes, that they are not able to open up yet retail can? Where is the difference there? Well, it's livelihoods and it's lives, yeah, ultimately. Yeah, I'm hearing stories behind the scenes that are not particularly pleasant in regard to what's going on or, or where these businesses could be in the next sort of three to four weeks. Yeah, I think the government's made the right move to take on a little bit more risk, you know, open up. Um, seems a little bit ironic, though, in regard to the, the tearing or the, 
you know, the sort of rules for retail versus the rules for hospitality. I'm sort of struggling to get my head around the, the differentiation there, but, mm. you know, the government's got the advice and they've put it on the table. But, you know, we are opening up, but there is a fair bit of pain that's emanating out of Auckland at the moment, and it's continuing. It's different, though, opening up this time to opening up last time. Coming out of that first lockdown, we had COVID absolutely nailed. This time, we know it is here to stay. Will there be some reluctance from people to spend, to travel around, to be the ones to potentially take COVID to smaller places? Yeah, there will be. And I guess what we're going to see is a couple of things. Look, the effect one is just the pent-up demand. You know, for a lot of people that haven't been able to get out there and get the stuff they've wanted. Yeah, they're going to be off to the races, and then we've got to you know, round that out with what you would call that, that cabin fever effect. You know, people have been locked up in Auckland for a long time. You know, they're going to want to go out and actually do some stuff, reconnect with families, friends, go shopping, etc., etc., etc. And if you look at you, know, there's a fair bit of money still sloshing around New Zealand. You know, the unemployment rate's just about at a, a basically a, a record low. Income growth is, is pretty strong. The housing market's still ripping along. You know, so you know, bottom up, you know, prospects for the retail sector and New Zealand economy still look pretty good. Yeah, but subject to that big behavioural effect in regard to, I think there's going to be a pretty big portion of the population that's going to look at this thing and thinking. I'm going to lock myself down and book really for a little bit longer. I don't want to go out. I'm going to be yeah. dealing with COVID on an enduring basis. It's just a different proposition in regard to people's mindset. Mindset to eliminate the goddamn thing. Yeah. So we're going to get a bit of a spike. Yeah, but I don't think it's going to be anywhere near like what we saw in 2020. No. Uh, look, what's happening with interest rates, Cameron? What do we need to know? Well. You can either the glass half full or glass half full. <laughs> glass half full, the economy literally across most economic indicators has been as strong as an ox. Yeah, we, we've got excess demand. Yeah, that means that we're too hot to trot. You know, the property market, labour market, absolutely cooking. It's fundamentally a really good economic story. And then you've got the flip side. When you've got too much of a good economic story, subject to, I think, a real a whole lot of cracks that are opening up within the story as we speak, particularly in regard to Auckland, or if you're in the construction sector out of Auckland, you can't get building materials, these sort of things. So those cracks are really starting to manifest across the broader New Zealand economy. But the glass up empty side is that if you've got an economy that's still yeah, got excess demand, or we can also express insufficient supply, as in we can't get the stuff, you've got an inflation problem, that means interest rates are moving up. And the market is expecting in the next couple of years the official cash rate to go to 2.5%. Now, now that, that's getting out there and hitting the economy pretty hard over the coming 12 to 24 months. But it's a sign that, that the economy across every benchmark that the Reserve Bank is seeing is screaming inflation. And of course, yeah, inflation is going to hit everyone, including the farmers. And one of the interesting things that I'm trying to work out at the moment is which is going to be the bigger cost to farmers, you know, interest rates moving up or inflation. Yeah, interesting point. Uh, when's the next update from the Reserve Bank? Uh, we're going to get the Reserve Bank uh, again and be out there with another decision in, in two weeks' time. And yet the market is pricing in uh, a 25 basis point hikes looks, you know, a lay down the ear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market is starting to price in some chance that it could go a little bit more than that. I, I think they'll be gradual. But, you know, if I was the Reserve Bank, I'd be increasingly fretting about where the New Zealand economy could be in 2022 and what's going on in China. 
but it's a, it's a real tackle, awkward situation for the Reserve Bank because low unemployment, cooking labour market, inflation indicator is telling them to get rates up. But boy, do we face an awful lot of uncertainty over what the economy could be heading in 2022. Yeah, and it's not as if our uh, immigration uh, laws are actually coming into force and MIQs opening up just yet. We need a lot of migrant labour as well coming through. Cameron Bagri, independent economist with Bagri Economics, really appreciate your time. Are you doing Movember? No, I'm not doing November, but better sponsorship. Yep, excellent. I will uh, send you the details and you can sponsor our team, the country team, powered by AFCO. We're sitting on $13,495. I love it when people say they're not taking part because that means all their money can come to us. Cameron Bagri, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It is uh, 18 and a half after 12. Quickest of breaks on the other side of it. It is our Norwood panel. We missed them on Friday. Let's talk a bit of farm machinery, a bit of uh, footy, and also a bit of taking a break off the farm with Tim Myers and Smiley Barrett next here on The Country. Today's panel is the Norwood panel, brand ambassador Kevin Smiley Barrett and the most important guy at the top, the CEO Tim Myers. We just missed them on Friday, I'm not sure what was going on. Jamie would say poor producing, I'd say poor hosting, but we've got them today. And Tim, we're going to start with you in the Manawatu. Manawatu up against Otago, semi-final this Friday night as the chairman of the Manawatu Rugby Union. Did you expect to be in this position? Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rose. Uh, g'day, Smiley. Yeah, well, we did, actually. I mean, uh, those that have been watching the Turbos um, probably noticed quite a bit of difference to the way that the team are performing on field. So we had high expectations right from the outset. And, of course, with some of our other championship team colleagues not being able to play uh, for obvious reasons, um, the, odd, the odds did improve again. But, yeah, the, the town's got a good little buzz going. And I think we got bumped on Friday, Rose, actually, for the former Prime Minister, Sir John Key. Ah, that's it. Happy to step aside for him. (laughs) Yeah, he's had some interesting theories at the moment. It was great to have him on the show. And a lot of support out there. A lot of people saying, bring John Key back. What say you? I just speaks to people that might not understand a lot of the the terminology and other language and comms that are coming out of the current government. It could just practical sense. Um, It seems to resonate, certainly resonates with me. Unfortunately for, for the National Party, there is maybe just a bit of a lack of direction at the moment in terms of how the party itself wants to position itself on that on that political spectrum and those of us that have been national supporters since we could start voting uh, just a, a little bit directionless at the moment. I think we're finding that a lot of common sense goes a long way at the moment when people are just so fraught uh, Speaking of common sense, we'll bring you into the to the conversation Smiley Barrett, uh, on your Taranaki farm, we've actually caught you in between farms what's going on in the farming world? Good afternoon to you. Yeah, good afternoon, Ro, Tim and listeners. Oh, we've had six days of uh, south-easterly wind there, which has, yeah, done some damage, but um, pleased to see the back end of that, and it's uh, sun shining today, so, yeah, looking forward to the rain on the weekend just to get things going again, but um, four hectares of turnips to get in, and we've um, got 35 hectares of solids down, so busy next couple of days, Ro, yeah. Yeah, well, you had a busy weekend the other weekend. I managed to pop up to visit you on the farm. Bit of a party on the ranch for Bowden's 100th game against the All Blacks. You ran your Guinness keg dry. Yeah, boys, a bit thirsty that day, yeah. But <laughs> it was pretty timely. Um, uh, we finished up there a bit, a bit late at night, but um, that was a good day, yeah. It was good to um, to celebrate um, an All Black win in Bowden's 100. Awesome. What did you make of Italy? Well, I mean, that's league. Talking to um, Alan Crowley, he lives across the road from me. He's Kieran's brother that coaches them. I think they only got together on Tuesday, so... 
um, really, you know, four days preparation. Uh, what more can you expect? But um, the All Blacks really, I mean, can't find many excuses, really. I mean, you're only as good as you're allowed. And, um, yeah, they were forced into a lot of errors, really. So, but disappointing. I mean, the boys will be disappointed, but uh, they'll move on. And it's yeah, another game this week, which is Ireland, which will be a, it'll be a great game by all counts, I'd say. And, of course, you'll be getting up and drinking Guinness, but you'd normally be there, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's right. But it's been disappointing the last two years we haven't been together be able to travel and it's, it's sort of the highlight of the year really to get over there and usually head over what is it this weekend yes this weekend would be there yeah it's usually the, usually we head over for the third game so on tour you know we missed the one in the Asia or America where it is and get the three on the back end over there so it will be an absolute cracker Tim are you going to get up and watch it I will yeah I've got a couple of good good mates of mine that live in Ireland so there's been a bit of banter over the last few days and as is probably always the case with the Irish they're they're fired up and they believe they can get the job done so we'll see. Yeah it's great to see that belief coming through. Look we've heard from Smiley that he's busy out on the farm and the tractor and stuff. How's the machinery industry looking heading into peak harvest season Tim? Well I think mirroring Smiley's comments, season around many parts of the country has, has obviously been a bit slow with the cooler weather. We've got a couple of beautiful days on the trot here, certainly in the Manawatu and driving around uh, over the weekend, uh, certainly a bit of grass being chopped. It's, it's cranking up for us. It means making sure that the inventory that's brought into the country for this purpose is ready to go and, and that it's moving out of warehouses. That's actually been a bit of a struggle for us. We had a really large shipment of this particular situation. Bailers arrive. Those machines take about 40 hours of labour to, to get ready to move out onto farm. So when you have 50 of them arrive at once, uh, you can imagine the pressure that comes on that particular part of our business, that resource. Uh, the team got it done. Uh, they were operating under uh, COVID-related restrictions, so space limitations, etc., but they, they found out a, figured out a way to get it done, which was awesome. That, that product's all moved out and should now be on farm. So it's it's just that time of the year, right? It's, um It happens every year. Um, the pressure really comes on businesses like Norwood. And when I say businesses, I'm, I actually mean the people. You know, mm. People that are tasked with being on farm with our customers are at risk uh, of burnout. Uh, so we keep a really close eye on that, particularly uh, with with the focus on, on men's health uh, for, the, for the month of November. Sorry, slip there, November. It's an area of focus for us, just reminding our people to make sure they get rest because this is that time of year when they can very easily go many, many consecutive days without without the appropriate amount of sleep and rest. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Smiley, just you mentioning about how you would normally be overseas watching the boys play rugby at this time of the year. Is there a tendency just to carry on on the farm or will you make sure you get some time off because you do need a break? Probably Probably just keep going, have a break later on before Christmas, you know, so when the balls are out, sides is off and crops are in, yeah, so you sort of play, work around the weather, really. And at least you do manage to get the odd day out there fishing in between. I'm looking at the sea now, Rowan, I should be out there, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be good to a Thursday, so I'll see if I have a good, good day tomorrow. Good to get out there on Thursday. Fingers oh, crossed. Fingers crossed, indeed. Tim, just a quick question for you. We're noticing it here whenever we're having conversations with people outside our little bubble here in Dunedin that they're getting really frustrated. And speaking with friends in Auckland, they are really starting to struggle right now. Yeah, they are. And look, I think it's just one of those examples where of, um, there is no urban-rural divide when it, when it comes to this pent-up frustration. And I think really quite valuable, actually, to, to just sit back and reflect upon that uh, because I think, as Jamie's been talking about for quite some time now, days and weeks, 
it does feel quite divided out there at the moment. But I think if we contemplate just the sort of situation we are in as a country, as we sit back and acknowledge that we're all in this together. Now, the one exception to that, of course, is that the people, colleagues in Auckland, friends in Auckland, have been locked down now for 80-something days, talking to a friend of mine this morning, saying you can actually feel it. I mean, it's, it's beyond frustration. It's sometimes boiling over into anger and driving around on the street, something that might result in a flick of the headlights or something to let you know you might have cut someone off mistakenly or whatever, now resulting in full-on abuse, and it feels very tense. So, look, um, you know, I think we've been given some guidance from this government. Um, you know, bring it on. We, we need to start getting back out and living our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And look, if you are listening to us while you're driving around, especially if you're listening, driving around in Auckland, just take it easy. Remember, everyone is trying to do their best out there. And look, speaking of doing their best, Smiley, I'm sorry for mentioning the F word, fishing, but thank you both so much for your time on the show today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much, Ray. Cheers. All the best. Thanks, Ray. Have a good day. You guys too. It is coming up to half past 12. Up next, we'll try and track down Barbara Kerrigan, National Party's agriculture spokesperson. There's a school in her electorate that could lose all its staff when the government's mandate vaccine mandate takes effect next week. We'll get her thoughts on that. Uh, still to come this hour, Amber Carpenter, South Auckland Dairy Farmer. We'll find out how they are coping in this extended lockdown, trying to raise a family and run a business. It is 28 away from one. Joining us now out of Parliament, she's literally just stepped out of a caucus meeting, is Barbara Kerrigan, Nationals Agriculture Spokesperson. Uh, First of all, Barbara, I saw Simon Bridges asked this morning uh, whether Judith will still be leader of the National Party by Christmas. What say you? Good afternoon. Oh, look, absolutely she will be. I mean, we're really making strides at the moment. There's a massive protest outside Parliament uh, today about the government and uh, Judith and everyone on the team have been making a great effort to uh, get the issues out to the public who have had enough. And so, yep, Judith will absolutely be the leader. The Productivity Commission came out with a report yesterday and recommended that migrants who learn to our Māori get favouritism when in terms of moving to New Zealand and residency and things like that. Look, I'm a massive fan of learning to our Māori, but some of these migrants also, you know, they're giving up so much. These are doctors, these are lawyers, these are nurses, these are everything we need in New Zealand. Are we saying if they don't learn another language that we don't need them? Well, look, I just think it's a it's a pretty bold statement for the Productivity Commission to make because I'm a bit like, yeah, I've got no problem with speaking Māori, but some of these people are actually still trying to learn English. Mm. And uh, it just seems like a, a, a big thing to heap on them. And I'll tell you what I'm more worried about with the Productivity Commission report is they talk about bringing in no more migrants until we have the uh, infrastructure. Well, we've got lots of infrastructure out on our farms at the moment that are just screaming out for people to fill the houses and um, you know Dairy NZ is currently asking for 1500 more for 2022 and of course the other agricultural industries will be as well so I just think the Productivity Commission might need to go back a little bit closer to the drawing board and think a bit harder on this one. How do these organisations, how do they do it any other way? I mean they've explained why we need these workers, they've explained where they're going to go, they've explained there are farms for them to go to, there are farmers who are crying out for workers and still they're getting no buy-in from the government it seems. 
Yeah, and look, we're getting to the stage where people are double vaxxed. They can come in here safely. I really think that the government had some romantic dream that when we, uh, if we didn't let people in, that uh, everyone would come in and fill our farm jobs when the unemployment rate grew. Uh, the unemployment rate happily hasn't started growing. And uh, we just, the whole romantic notion that we're going to have a whole lot of people filling these jobs is just not happening. We need those immigrants. And uh, I'm not sure which page the government on, but not the one in the real world that we all live in. How are we going to staff our schools from Monday? We've got a school in your electorate in King Country, Matiuri School. Uh, three teachers, three support staff and a relief teacher. None of them are vaccinated. We, we struggle to find teachers in rural areas anyway. Yeah, and look, schools, uh, there's going to be a lot of rural schools like this. There's a lot of one-teacher, two-teacher schools. If teachers are making that choice, uh, it's going to be a struggle. And I'm finding that across rural communities as a whole you know we've just uh, talked about screaming out for people and needing more to do the jobs and um it's uh, it's it's volunteers as well it's fire brigades it's you know you go right across the rural communities between the volunteers and the staff when you haven't got enough you can't afford to lose any more yeah, look, I'm all for the vaccine. I think, you know, we do our bit to keep those who are vulnerable, who have compromised immune systems safe. But there is a point where reality and, and you know, what's going to happen to our students learning? It's already been so, so disjointed and disrupted. Yeah. It is a big yeah. issue that we're facing. Look, where and are look, we I, at? I'm, oh, double va- I'm double vaxxed too. But mm-hmm. look, at the moment, people have got the choice of one vaccine. And there's people who are immune compromised who are asking for other choices. And, you know, um, I just think the government needs to think a bit broader on this. Where are we at with Three Waters, Barbara? I mean, we've got the the mayors are meeting in a Zoom. They're looking at sending a letter to the government. Has there been any indication that they may give a little on this or is it still Nanaima Hooters Way or the highway? There has been no indication that they're going to give. Uh, Chris Luxon's been uh, locked up in Auckland through this process. Uh, We've got some MPs that are starting to come back to Wellington uh, now, but I distinctly asked a question on his behalf of Nanaia Mahuta a few weeks ago um, whether she was going to back off, and clearly uh, it was not long after that they actually came out and said no, they were doing the legislation. Um, it just seems like they're hell-bent on doing this because they have the voting numbers uh, and think they can. Um, we would certainly be undoing it uh, when we're on the other side of the fence. I just think it's there's tone deafness here. You know, they're not listening to the local government. They're not listening to Groundswell. They're refusing to meet with everybody and um, they're just on their own path. Yeah, looking forward to uh, chatting to Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern on the show tomorrow and putting some of those issues to her to get her take. Uh, Whether we'll get a straight answer is anyone's guess. Barbara, your electorate, half of it is in lockdown in King Country, half in Taranaki, is safe at this stage. How's the feeling out there amongst people that you've been speaking to, I guess, over the phone? Oh, look, absolutely frustrating. Um, I've been doing Zooms and phone calls and, you know, I held my breath when they had the wastewater sample at Stratford the other day mm. um, because, uh, you know, that was the part of my electorate that was in Level 2. Um, look, the feeling is uh, it's not 
just the frustration of it, but no one's getting any answers. Waitomo was in level three for a very long period of time. The mayor was trying to get answers out of the government as to why it was with no cases. Um, last week, we did have one case in Waitomo, uh, and so far it's only been one case. But, you know, again, a bit like the three waters, the government is actually not engaging with the mayor. Apparently, they're not uh, giving the Otrahonga mayor any more information now because he's sharing it with his community. I mean, that's his job. And, you know, every question we ask, we just don't get answers to. It's terrible. Seems to be a bit par for the course. Barbara Curriga, National Party Agriculture Spokesperson, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. There we go, 22 away from one. We better move. Uh, rural news, sports news next. Before the end of the hour, I don't think we're going to fit Emma Buchanan in, but Amber Carpenter and some of your feedback. Welcome back. No Jamie Mackay today. Rowena Duncan, Tess Printer, seeing you through to one o'clock. And because there's no Jamie, that means Tess gets rural news and I get sport. Here we go. The country's rural news with Lawnmaster. Hardworking products for hardworking Kiwis since 1946. Visit steelfort.co.nz for your local stockist. In rural news, central Otago farms and vineyards may have easier access to sustainable fencing very soon. Waiuku-based farmer Jerem Wenslick developed fence posts made from recycled plastic, says that he can't make enough to meet demands from farmers. He started Future Post after he tried to build a wooden security fence around an industrial section that used to be a landfill. He says the recycled fence posts last for about 50 years or plus and help reduce landfill waste. Winslick also runs his own farm alongside the business, which plans to double its output before the end of the year. And that is another example of rural ingenuity helping uh, create a bit of a solution for something that's an urban and a rural problem. We all create plastic, but we can get rid of it and make it into something useful on our farms. And they also make amazing garden beds. You can use them like you'd use those, uh, what are they, the big ones, uh, the railway posts, oh, to actually make a bit of a yeah, garden. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. There you go. Great work for the future Kiwi poster. ingenuity. Kelly ingenuity at its finest. Here's sport. Sport with AFCO. Visit their new website at afco.co.nz. Railway sleepers, that's what I meant. Railway sleepers, there we go. It's a bit hard to play charades when you're on the radio and not many people <laughs> can see you. Look in sport, New Zealand has a, sh- a new shift emission uh, to replace Rob Woodell for the Birmingham Commonwealth Games next year. Sydney Olympian and five-time Commonwealth Wealth Games weightlifting medalist Nigel Avery has accepted the role. They used to jostle for the Hurricanes halfback duties. Now TJ Perinara and Jamison Gibson Parker poised to eyeball each other on the field on Sunday morning's test. Perinara says he admires what Gibson Park has done since moving to Ireland. The stands will be empty due to COVID restrictions, but the New Zealand Trotting Cup will still enjoy a 118th running at Addington. Only members, corporate partners, owners, and workers are permitted to witness the 15 paces contested. The $600,000 purse at 5.50pm this evening. And Sailor Tom Saunders is third after four days of the Laser World Championships in Barcelona. Up next, we're going to head to lockdown. South Auckland, Amber Carpenter. Amber Carpenter is a farmer there, mum of two, and someone who's uh, had a bit of an interesting backstory to farming. She's up next here on The Country. In the middle of the night, I 
Well, we really do value a partnership with Farmstrong here at the country. They put us in touch with some amazing people right around the country, and our next guest is no exception. Amber Carpenter joins us now, a South Auckland dairy farmer who made the transition from the fashion industry to farming back in 2007. We will find out why in a moment. But also, Amber joins us from lockdown, where they've been there for a lot longer than anyone expected. We'll find out some tips around how to get through that with you, your family and your staff. But first of all, Amber, tell me a bit about your farming operation. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. It's, um, we've got a dairy farm, split calves, 550 cows here in South Auckland, and we've also got two beef operations as well, along with an 11-month-old baby and a four-year-old, so life is pretty hectic. And look, just disclaimer here, you are holding the 11-month-old who has chosen to wake up, and you said to me in the ad break, he has a lot to say for someone who doesn't talk yet. Yeah. Does. He is um, chatting all the time, points at things, looks at things, constantly talking, which is great. Like, I love our little conversations. I have no idea what they're about. He's going to be a bit of a talker, so he obviously takes after me. Brilliant. Well, let's do some talking now. You've come from a fashion background into farming. Why farming? Oh, I met my husband uh, like 15 years ago now. I was from Auckland City, moved out to the farm, it must have been about 13 or 14 years, and I just absolutely loved everything about the dairy industry and agriculture. The biggest thing was just the people. It was just this, such a refreshing transition coming in from like a corporate executive role. The heart of Auckland City, uh, travelling around the world and the pressure is very similar, but the people were just such genuine good hearing people. They care about who you are, what you're up to, helping you get ahead in life, which is really lovely. I've absolutely enjoyed the dairy industry and getting out and looking after the land and our animals and making something of your own as well. So it's been really nice family. We've got two kids now. Having kind of that family atmosphere and the kids growing up, watching us do what we do and they're really passionate about it as well. So It's a great lifestyle. I'm really glad I made the switch. It's so wonderful to hear someone so passionate about the industry as well. Thanks so much uh, for sharing all that, Amber. Look, coming from a a city background, you would have seen a lot of HR support wrapped around businesses, and we don't tend to have that in rural New Zealand. No, um, it has been a really interesting transition from that point of view. I've managed large teams in my previous life but always had a big support network in terms of HR. So I did notice that coming into our business and when our staff numbers grew, the importance of ensuring that HR set up was really key for us, um, following processes, supporting our staff as well. Um, You kind of become everything, like a bit of a parent, a friend, an employer as well. So making sure we're doing the right thing by our team is really essential. But there's some great resources out there as well that have definitely helped along the HR um, understanding and education for myself so um, through primary ITO and Dairy NZ and different resources so it's, it's great to have that but pretty much every I guess department that you would have in a corporate world you are every department when you are running your own farm. How has it been spending an extended period of time in lockdown how have you and the family kept positive and kept going? Oh, we are extremely grateful. Um, we just count our blessings every day that we can still keep going. We had almost finished carving when lockdown hit, and we've been in and out of lockdown since it started last year, mm. so it's kind of became one of those things that's like, okay, well, we'll be here for two weeks, and then life will go back to normal. Um, and we'd kind of been locked down for, I think, six weeks anyway, going into carving. Twelve weeks later... Um, very different story. I have to, I'm not going to lie, it's been probably the most challenging 12 weeks of our life. 
two kids at home, trying to, you know, keep running the farm, um, keeping everybody spirits up, everyone safe. Like it's quite um, nerve wracking in the current environment, not really knowing what is going to happen. And it's, I guess COVID's right on our doorstep, really. It's in our community. It's down the road from our supermarkets are closed all the time for deep clean. So it is quite, it's been a very strange time. But we've just really tried to keep our routine the same, kept the kids up. We're very lucky we have so much space to run around in, so Mm. we're not very confined. When we're able to kind of get to a point in level three, have very kind of social distance drinks with the team. Like obviously we keep up with our COVID working protocols at two metres, we've got our masks, our sanitising, but just kind of keeping communication open, checking in with people every day, seeing how they're doing. Everyone's kind of been affected differently by it and everyone's stress levels are different. And I understand you've been looking at Farmstrong's uh, Five Ways to Wellbeing as well. Yeah, Farmstrong's um, program and initiative is amazing. Their website has so much amazing content on there that can just help from a wellbeing point of view, from how to get good sleep at night, obviously keeping yourself fit, mental health, which... For mental health for us has been huge over the last 12 weeks um, and just keeping keeping yourself going in really tough times. So the Farmstrong's fantastic and their five ways to wellbeing is um, something that we definitely follow here. Yeah, absolutely. Good on you. Look, and thanks to our partners at Farmstrong. We have got five prize packages to give away at the moment. Uh, they're from Ida Down and Zealand Bedding. So each prize includes a 100% New Zealand alpaca four seasons king size duvet, two New Zealand wool and polyester pillows. Each package is worth $1,000. It is super, super cosy stuff. If you want to win, just head to our Facebook page, search the country, comment on the post pinned to the top of the page. It's a picture of me and Tess testing out those uh, duvets and pillows. Uh, give us your top tip for getting a good night's sleep and you are in the draw. It is super, super easy. Amber Carpenter, South, o- uh, South Auckland. I went to say to South Otago, but no, a little further away from home. <laughs> South Auckland Dairy Farmer. Look, thanks so much for your time and sharing how you and the team up there in lockdown are managing to make the best of a pretty tough situation. Really appreciate your openness and honesty. Cool, thank you so much for having me. It is my absolute pleasure. We are coming up to a seven away from one. We will wrap the show next. Five away from one, Rowena Duncan, Tess Prentice on the show today, thinking of the Mackay family. One year since Billy Mackay's passing, Jamie's best mate, first cousin, best man at his wedding. I know today will be a really tough day. It's been a really tough week for everyone, but we are thinking of them. And Tess, there's a great way that uh, we can give away some fun packs to people who are supporting our Movember efforts and joining our team. Yeah, exactly, Row. And if you think you've got a magnificent looking Mo and it's uh, looking pretty good, just DM us a picture and you could be next week's Mo of the Week. And, you, you know, there's some Movember masks and fun packs. So, or you could just email it through to us on, on air at thecountry.co.nz. Yeah, so just DM us, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of the above, on air at thecountry.co.nz is our email address. And also, if you are wanting to uh, donate to the cause, we are doing really, really well, it must be said. Thank you so much to everyone who has uh, contributed. Your generosity is just amazing. 13 $1,495 raised so far and we are nine days into November aiming for $25,000 raising money uh, for men's health. It's uh, a lot of uh, amazing causes that benefit from November. Now I had an amazing Snoopy's Christmas 
story. But Tessa, you tell me it's too early to play Snoopy's Christmas. We are only at the 9th of November. What do you think? Send us a text 5009 is the number. Do we want to hear the Snoopy's Christmas story or should I save that one for December? Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern joining us on the country tomorrow. Looking forward to finding out her thoughts around the three waters. Should it have been railroaded through as it was? Is it right that we get uh, put more caveats on our migrant workers that we are so desperately calling out for here in New Zealand and a few other things besides that. I think I've been practice interviewing her in the shower every day since I found out uh, Jamie was away this week and it was all on me. Thank you so much for your company here today. We will see you back tomorrow. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Station. Please remain seated until docking is complete. Odyssey. Dare to wonder. And now, your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour with Dean Haglund and Phil Lairness. Welcome once again to your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. This is Season 2, Episode 101. I am your friend in podcasting coming at you from Los Angeles. Phil Lairness and coming at us all the way from Birmingham, Michigan. It's the Motor City adjacent Madman. It's TV's Dean Haglund. Dean, you were just telling me about uh, this week's big ghost hunt. And uh, I'm curious as to whether the locale where it's taking place is tied in with Veterans Day. Oh, it might very well be. Yes, our episode of Scared and Alone will be taking place uh, this time outdoors in the second oldest cemetery in New York State. Well, we do celebrate. Is that what we say? We commemorate Veterans Day this week, uh, I believe, on the 11th, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And, That's the Armistice Day, yes. And uh, we set our clocks back. We we have done that already. And I somehow managed to lose many hours of sleep in the bargain. <laughs> How? That's not, you're supposed to get an extra hour of sleep, not lose. And it was an extra hour of work that I, I got. I did uh, a, a, a very uh, intensive weekend long of editing a job for the good folks at uh, Donate life 
the organ donor registry. And boy, what a what a moving video this is uh, turning out oh, to be. But boy, it was really? uh, it was a, it was a long, long couple of days cutting that. <laughs> Had to get it delivered, don't you know? Because uh, Monday you know? is all about your chill pack Hollywood hour, and this week about me returning to a town called Turlock. Oh, Lord, Turlock has returned. Fear my wrath. <laughs> Enjoy my beverage at the local Starbucks. Yeah, I haven't been in uh, in many, many months since springtime. So it'll be good wow. to check in there. Going to spend several days tending to things before Lily and I continue on to parts north for Amy P. Kelly's wedding. Fans of the long-running All About Walkin' show that Lily was a part of, of course, will remember Amy Kelly. I once got to play Amy Kelly's husband in a movie. She's delightful. She's talented. She's getting hitched in, well, not even in Santa Rosa, in a census-designated town, the name of which I can't uh, remember. But the closest (laughs) city is Santa Rosa. And uh, Santa Rosa, not a town with good memories for me. Uh, I <laughs> attended a track meet there when I was when I was young, uh, and n- never never wanted to go back. Uh, but oh. I, I just read a U.S. News and World Report article about the thirty most fun cities in America. Okay, and Santa Rosa's like in the top ten. Really? Yeah. I find that hard to believe. What do they consider fun? Going to the Charles Schultz Peanuts Museum? Is well, that fun? Well, I mean, that is fun. I didn't know that was there. <laughs> he yeah. lived there most of his life. He he built a hockey rink. He liked hockey, so he actually built a skating rink there so him and his friends could play hockey. Five cities were uh, from California were, were featured on the list, uh, inc- oh. including Sacramento, Fres- <laughs> Fresno? Um, Fres, yes. <laughs> I'm not going to run you through all of them. Okay. It's available for people to look at, to wonder, to get mad about. It's a, a meaningless <laughs> list, but uh, but enjoyable reading over the weekend during my scant breaks. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I do have a new goal, though, which is... Uh, in the coming year, we do one show from each of the 30 most fun cities. Oh, hey, and have fun in them. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> well, we we certainly lower their ranking in the process. <laughs> you know, last week we were talking about the French Dispatch. Yes. And it got me wondering, uh, in a larger sense... The role of film critics as we are emerging from pandemic, because I certainly think a critic's role uh, had shifted a great deal during pandemic. I mean, if you think of the movies that actually made a mark during that past year, sure, there were a couple with big marketing budgets behind them, but for the most part, it really was critics and critic groups formulating the the group of films around which the larger conversation took place. And indeed, therefore, when we got to things like the Oscars, had there ever been more of a collection of critical darlings represented 
in the awards voting. Because, because they were the only ones seeing it. Uh, kind of. They were still seeing everything and their work kind of hadn't changed at a time when the, to this day, leading marketing apparatus for a film, i.e. a theatrical release, was no longer in the mix. Hey. So I've just been wondering, now that we're emerging, now that people are getting back to theaters, what is the, not the role, but what is the impact of critics? So French Dispatch, uh, despite getting uh, somewhat mixed reviews, certainly for uh, late era Wes Anderson movies, um, you know, he, he was coming off a string of films that were just universally hailed by critics, right? Starting with Fantastic Mr. Fox, going through Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest Hotel, Isle of Dogs. Uh, And yet it's the first film to really carve out a successful spot in what is called the art house or specialty box office. It's doing quite well (laughs) where when all these other films are having a hard time getting people out to the theaters. It was one of the things that made me realize that where Wes Anderson is concerned, I'm not sure critics have that much of a function. They certainly did where uh, Grand Budapest Hotel was concerned, um, in in that all those nominations that it got did help its, its box office. In fact... Uh, did you know that of the 10 Wes Anderson films, the uh, difference in box office take between uh, number two on his list as most successful film and number 10 is far less dramatic than the difference between his number two most successful film and his number one most successful film. That's, really? That's what a big hit Grand Budapest Hotel was around the world. And you have to think that the uh, award nominations really, really helped it. But what I'm noticing with French Dispatch is that the audience reviews of the film, the user reviews and ratings are so much higher than the critical reviews and ratings. Go back in time to Royal Tenenbaums, which is his second most successful film at the box office, and the audience reviews and ratings are significantly lower than the critical reviews and ratings. And that made sense to me because that was his first hit. That was the first time critics said, Everyone needs to see this and where he worked with a star that was going to attract attention outside his own following. He was developing Gene Hackman in his last great film role. So so people who might never otherwise have seen a Wes Anderson film did because of the universal critical acclaim and the appearance of Gene Hackman. And it turns out many of them did not like the experience of seeing a Wes Anderson film. Well, because you have to uh, realize he's got a very personal visual signature, a very uh, unique storytelling uh, device, and his his casting of characters, spot on always, but always... slightly different than most other movies. And and even just the idea of having almost a stock company 
is something yeah. that really isn't seen much anymore. So that uh, sometimes takes some getting used to for people, uh, especially because so many of these movies feel like they're in the same universe. But uh, but I I do think that for the uninitiated, yeah, Royal Tenenbaums was um, not what it was for people who had liked Bottle Rocket and loved Rushmore. It was this evolution of a unique voice. For a lot of people, it was, wait a minute, this is not what movies are. Right. And, right. and and so they didn't like it. Well, flash forward now, what, 20 years later, roughly, and roughly. no one is going to go see the French Dispatch that isn't already a Wes Anderson fan. Exactly. And you're already uh, in tune, either from the trailer or just even the poster, that you have a sense of what it's going to look like, how it's going to unfold what its pacing and tone is going to be. And so you are walking into it prepared. I think if you hadn't seen any Wes Anderson or even, you know, just thought, oh, I'm just going to stumble into a movie, then you might go, what the heck? But if you go in knowing, I imagine you're going in knowing what you're going to experience and how much you either enjoy that or are curious just as Wes Anderson as an artist, what he's creating, right? I mean, it's like going to an art gallery and saying, oh, here's some Matisse. I know how he paints. Let's see what uh, what they have in this here art gallery. Right. And so uh, you may not actually think it's great, but you know the work. Exactly. You go and, and I think that's as it should be, because, again, films should be judged in different kinds of context. One of those is within the body of the work of the people who made it. Right. Uh, and, and therefore, just picking it out individually uh, maybe doesn't do the work or the viewer a service. And so that comes back to, well, then what is the role of the critic? And I don't have a, a specific answer, but I do believe clearly in the case of Wes Anderson, and it's the thesis I'm going to suggest as we move into looking at some of these other films that it's uh, to operate truly in the margins. They do have an impact, but it is in the margins. And sometimes those margins make a huge difference. Uh Um, So if the critical acclaim was such that a Wes Anderson movie gets serious consideration for major awards— well, now you're opening a door historically to much greater box office success. And wasn't this always the case with Woody Allen movies? Yeah. You could always tell who made it, right? It wasn't yeah. the same kind of stylistic fun house that Wes Anderson creates. Um, wasn't as um, sealed uh, in a Woody Allen movie, but in its own ways... Yeah, it was just as cloistered an experience within the mind of Woody Allen, these stories that he was telling. And uh, they became increasingly uh, sort of niche appeal. Um, And occasionally critics would let us know with a Midnight in Paris, with a Blue Jasmine. But they would let the the film-going public uh, writ larger know, hey, this is a particularly special Woody Allen that you'd be well advised to avail yourself of. It didn't make it a blockbuster, but in those margins, it did open it to really significant box office success compared to its budgets. And that happens 
with Wes Anderson. When you move to a bigger film, is it possible to still see that critics' impact is still generally in the margins? I'm looking at the opening of The Eternals, and Uh it uh, opened very well internationally. Everybody's very happy with it, just like with James Bond. Everybody's touting those international numbers. The domestic opening is really a wake-up call, people are saying, for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, in that it really is a very disappointing, underwhelming opening, maybe ultimately when all is said and done challenging their lowest openings, not what Marvel had in mind. And sure enough, it's, I think, the worst reviewed of the Marvel movies. But can we say that the box office disappointment is really directly related to the bad reviews or are the bad reviews indicative of a problem that was going to be sinking this movie to a lower target audience than uh, anticipated? Yeah, because A, the internals wasn't Marvel's biggest selling comic book to begin with. So they're, you know, they're going through the whole library now. And they're picking stuff off the uh, off the second shelf for sure. It seems like a little bit of uh, instead of hunger and humility, there's a certain we could say confidence bordering on arrogance in <laughs> saying, "Yeah, we can make the Eternals be the biggest hit of the year." And I believed them because of their track record, but that was not the company that made the first Iron Man. Remember when Iron Man came out, everybody was saying, what? This is B minus level <laughs> superhero. This is not a list superhero. This is not Spidey. And whoa, look at what a big hit it was because they really approached it from let's tell a great story and see how it does. Right. And right. I, I don't think they're ever approaching it from that point of view anymore. Uh, I think it's uh, the the machine, you call it the product locomotive, uh, the, you know, it's just taken on a life and a power of its own. And they just think, yeah, what, what characters haven't we used yet? And instead of thinking okay. that each character might need a really unique approach and maybe uh, great things should start smaller, um, it's no, this is going to be the new Avengers. Because we say so. Right. And you you end up uh, really putting, in this case, very talented filmmakers behind the eight ball. Chloe Zhao makes great movies. Marvel, historically, has made pretty good movies. Chloe Zhao plus Marvel apparently make pretty bad movies. (laughs) The truth is, I'm glad that she got a great opportunity. We're lying if we say that there's anything in her background, though, that shows that she has the experience in doing the kind of heavy plot lifting ensemble machinations that are required of her in something like this, where you've got to introduce and establish 10 characters. She is all about building the authenticity of characters' experiences. And here, it's all about, as a director, doing service to character notes. That's pretty much it. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the wrong director for an intro because it's an origin story, too. Or, or, well, for me, it'd be the first time 
hearing about this because I don't even think I knew the Eternals existed as a comic book series. You know, I think there's so many things here. I don't think the casting of Angelina Jolie as the name in it uh, helps. I don't think she is a box office asset anymore. Uh, right. So I think that's problematic. Are comic book movies, um, are they bulletproof? Well, Venom 2 is the one bona fide box office hit at the domestic box office. The one that not only opened well, but continues to do well so many weeks later. It is a genuine money machine at the box <laughs> office. Its reviews weren't great, but right. they were of a tone that let people know if this is what you enjoy, you're going to get even more of what you enjoy from this Venom than from the first one. And people liked that first one. I thought it was underappreciated. And so I bet I will enjoy the second one. I bet I'll enjoy it from the comfort of my own home. But, <laughs> uh, you know, the reviews on the Eternals certainly do change the the level of interest from either I don't care about what critics say or I bet it's going to be great to, well, how bad could it be? And the problem with asking a question is you always get the answer to your question. And if you walk in going, come on, how bad could it be? You might be astonished. A lot of people are, are coming away with that. It's painting the light in which people approach the material. So again, operating in a margin, but you're talking about a film that costs a lot of money. The marketing budget is a lot and critical response to it and then affect that affecting word of mouth uh, can hit it in margins that make a lot of difference in a product locomotive. Right. And that's, I think you sort of said too, that, you know, once that product locomotive has speed unto itself, you got to keep throwing box cars on there, you know, whether you want to or not. So that is also a problem. And I'm sure, you know, like, anything you have studio executives hanging over you watching the dailies every day and giving you notes must be miserable doing one of those one of those projects regardless of how much money they throw at you a movie that i do want to see edgar wright's last night in soho uh is doing just okay again in the specialty art house and right. it's sort of surprising to me that Edgar Wright is a director in the specialty and art house, right? He makes genre movies. But I think in this case, the, the reviews, which again have been lukewarm to generally positive, pretty good reviews collectively, isn't enough to get a big group of adults to flood out to their local art house uh, or specialty house multiplex to see this thing on the big screen. And right. yet... Those lukewarm reviews, pretty good reviews, might still be doing a service to the movie because I'm reminded of another genre film starring Anya Taylor-Joy, The Witch, from several years ago, which all right. critics fell all over themselves loving and hailing as a masterpiece of modern horror, and horror audiences hated it. This was a movie that did not give them what they want. So again, right. were the critics right? Were the audiences wrong? 
is it good? Is it bad? Who's to know? So often it comes down to context, right? Right. Um, No film is in a vacuum. And those audiences were not getting what they wanted and they hated it and they registered their displeasure and critics were left scratching their head going, well, why can't they love good horror films? Well, maybe, again, critics have a role in the margins of helping to frame what an audience can expect from the film. And last night in Soho, I now understand, though it's a ghostly tale, not to be a horror film. Don't go expecting a horror film. Expect more of a psychological thriller. That's a ah. that's a big distinction that could, yeah. in the long run, help a film find its audience. Yeah. I mean, and again, this then we're talking how you cut the trailer, how you market this thing, where you show it before – what movie, that kind of thing. Now, this this sounds like it's landing in the hand of the marketing department. Yep. If we flash back a month, we were talking about how October would really let us know how domestic movie going was emerging from the pandemic. And right. it certainly is emerging. It still has a way to go. Certain, you know, things are, are shaking out as our discussion has already borne out. But one of the movies... Dune. I uh, continue to be pretty impressed by how the film is performing at the domestic box office, uh, not because of a lack of quality on the part of the movie, but I've been impressed by the box office take Dune has been getting, despite being available on HBO Max. And I flash back to a conversation you and I had many, many months ago where you actually posited that you don't think making a film available on streaming does cut in to its box office, except perhaps, to use this word again, on the margins, maybe a little bit, but not a great deal. And if anything, you posited that it might help in certain cases. Do you think with Dune, the availability on HBO Max has helped its performance domestically? Well, I'll tell you what I stumbled on was a a talk with the uh, editor of Dune and uh, some of the um, tricks and and finesses that were done. And so I watched it on HBO Max, even though I seen it in the big theater, and I stopped watching it because I went, geez, you know, I might go back to the theater just to see this again, to see what he was talking about, because my screen seemed to diminish the movie and and take away the emotional context of what the editor was trying to accomplish, which I got on the big screen. You're listening to Odyssey. It holds up my theory that uh, the box office at the theater isn't affected by HBO Max. In fact, 
if you look at it on your TV and then you go, man, this would look great on a big screen. Much like I was disappointed I never got to see Mad Max Fury Road on a big screen. A genuine work of art. And I agree with you. You need to be immersed in that for the emotional core to really engage you. Um, yeah. I'm not sold that a streaming is going to help box office, um, but I am sold in the idea that in the two cases you just mentioned, it is. So it's possible. And I'm going to suggest with Dune that people who are Dune fans went to the theater to see it. People right. who either were Dune fans that felt too burnt by the past or are too scared <laughs> to go to the theater or maybe live in an area where they're not uh, close to a theater. All these people are seeing it on HBO Max and they're raving about it. Every time I'll, I'll turn on a podcast, a news podcast, a sports podcast, and people are talking about what they're watching, so often they talk about how they really are loving Dune and most of them uh, because their journalists watch these things at home, all of us are aware that this thing is available theatrically. And so the more people talk positively about it, the more traction it's gaining in all its release forms, as opposed to a traditional release where many of us, myself included, might sit back and listen to the critics, listen to the audiences who say Dune's really good, and yet for whatever reason, I might go, yeah, okay, I'll definitely watch it, but I still don't want to go to the theater to see this thing. <laughs> and then I'll wait for it to come out. But then there's always so many more movies for me to watch. It might be right. years, if ever, before I get around to it, if it doesn't make the consensus list of the most important films of the year. So this time I actually saw it. I was able to oh. be current. I was able to be in the conversation and people like me who did the same thing, their voices were added to the conversation. And in this case, it only helped raise all boats. Hooray, right? Uh, and <laughs> those voices of it not being good, and believe me, they are out there. I do get text messages from people in the middle of the night telling me simply, wow, Dune is so bad. But they are <laughs> reduced to text messages in the middle of the night and not uh, getting any groundswell of support. So I do think, I do think it's helped. And I think all of these different things have helped in the margins in a way that has really helped not only the box office performance, but the longevity. And that is something we rarely talk about at the box office anymore. How long can a film continue to generate revenue in a theater? Uh, that would be good for the theaters. And if the studios and the distributors would just get around to renegotiating their deals to make it more of a partnership with theaters, maybe we could get back to that idea of, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if movies don't have to make all their money in the first week if they can right. continue to perform? Uh, James Bond, No Time to Die, uh, continues to, to do very well internationally, continues to disappoint domestically. Uh, there are reasons for it, of course. 
I think one of those is the fact that it's mediocre at best. I do <laughs> okay. think the critical response did impact that. I think the running time impacted that. I think franchise fatigue of needing to stay up with all the films in a particular franchise to be able to follow a story caught up with it, especially in the case of James Bond, where many people like myself are going, can't you just give us a James Bond adventure sometime <laughs> instead sometime. of the f- another chapter in a novel? Um, right. So there's all those elements behind it. I did think it was telling that it's still in theaters, of course. It's it's only been out for a month. Uh, right. And uh, it's available uh, on demand now. Uh, at least last week, they weren't reporting box office on it anymore. Dom- wow. Domestically. They weren't reporting the returns on it. That's not well, a good that's because- not a good sign. I mean, for example, have you have you seen the latest James Bond? I have not, which is weird because you would think that's something on my list. Of course. And yet Quantum of <laughs> Solace, uh, you were there opening weekend. You were there uh, championing it until you were until your voice was hoarse. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's true. I enjoyed it. But, you know, my schedule, my availability, my, you know, all of that kind of thing. And uh, everybody's uh, was half and half on it, you especially. And so I didn't have a uh, a fire under my butt to get up and go to the theater and see this thing. That's exactly it. It's It's almost three hours, uh, which is the running time for an event. And uh, if you are told that this event may very well be underwhelming, uh, well, it's hard to schedule that all of a sudden, isn't it? (laughs) Right. Yeah, for sure. Starting with the critical response domestically did have an impact. If it was hailed the way that Skyfall was hailed, I don't think the running time uh, would have impacted its domestic performance as much as it did. But the combination of that running time with those rather tepid reviews made people just not have the enthusiasm necessary to turn it into the event that it seemed to be everywhere else in the world. Right. I'm talking out of turn, but it could be seen that Dune is a model now of how to... Uh, catapult your home your home streaming to your getting people in the theaters. Now that the calendar has turned from October to November, I am <laughs> yes. free of my need uh, to program a uh, Halloween themed horror festival throughout the month. I'm right. uh, far enough out from having to program a December holiday themed movie festival. So I am going back to some of my loves availing myself, especially of Japanese cinema. And uh, the first one I checked out was uh, from 2018. It, uh, it is a movie called The Third Murder. And oh. it's from the great uh, Hirokazu Koreeda who uh, was recently hailed so much for his uh, uh, Oscar-nominated film, uh, The Shoplifters. 
um, back in the 90s, I think it was, now did uh, the wonderful movie Afterlife about a group of people who are at a way station where they are required to pick the moment from their lives to live out for the rest of eternity. Um, So this movie, very much unlike most of his films, at least in its form, it seems to be a genre film. It is a uh, a courtroom mystery thriller, at least that's what it's pretending to be. But okay. it, uh, in some ways, is almost a Rashomon for the modern age. It uh, follows a well-known attorney who takes on the defense of a murder-robbery suspect. That's what it's called there. Someone right. who murders to steal. And uh, and that gets you the uh, the death penalty in a lot of cases. Right. And uh, this, the suspect is someone who served jail time for another murder 30 years earlier. And this attorney takes the case in part because his father was the judge in the original case, and his father had taken a bit of uh, leniency uh, towards sentencing on the man because he deemed him to be not an irredeemable uh, criminal, but rather a, a, a very um, sad victim of circumstances. So there's this issue of if the dad had given the sentence that he deserved, would this second murder never have taken place? Remember, the name of the film is The Third murder. Anyway, the chances of winning the case are almost null because the the suspect, the the client, has freely confessed his guilt. (laughs) But so many of the lawyers don't think that he deserves the death penalty for it. And so that's the reason they take the case. As they dig deeper into the case, hearing testimonies of the victim's family, of the murderer himself, the lawyer really begins to doubt Uh, Not only whether the guy did it, but how it was done or why it was done at all. And for the longest time, he doesn't care. It's a really great main character to follow in that regard because he's not even interested in proving innocence. He's interested in just getting the charges or the penalty reduced. But ultimately, even his own sense of curiosity begins to be the tail that wags the dog, and he tries to find out what it was that happened. Imagine Rashomon, if not a depiction of how people's memories are faulty, people who are all witnesses to the same event, Mm -hmm. but in a modern perspective of everybody lies... And everyone quickly begins to believe their own lies. Sound like the modern world to you? <laughs> yes. Fantastic. So, so it's Rashomon, but from a uh, a more cynical perspective. The supporting actor, uh, Koji Hashimoto, who uh, is known professionally as Koji Yakusho, uh, he won all the top awards there in Japan for supporting actor for this film. And while watching it, I realized, this guy has been a part of my life for decades. (laughs) I suddenly realized he's the man in the white suit in the classic Tampopo, uh, playing the film lover who seems to exist kind of outside time and then ends up dying within the movie that he's watching. Uh, um, He's 
he's uh, the the star of a film that really launched kind of modern Japanese cinema from the international perspective. Uh, he, he was the lead in Shall We Dance? Such a oh. such a major hit in Japan that it inspired a, a dance craze there. Ballroom groups and dance schools what? multiplied in, in in the country after the film's release. But also, it was a huge uh, hit, one of Jap- Japan's highest grossing movies outside the country. He was in the big international hit from about a decade ago, 13 Assassins. And he's in one of my all-time favorite uh, films from Japan, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Terrific Cure. Just a wonderful actor, and so it was so great to see him pop up. Uh, I also suddenly recognize the widow of the second murder victim. Um, she's played by Yuki Saito, and I go, oh, that that's the lady that plays Moriarty in the, the Japanese series Miss Sherlock. Oh, Miss Sherlock. Oh, wow. Um, and, and anyway, and I just want to say one, one other thing about uh, the lead actor who's so interesting, and I'm trying to discern, is this a good performance? Is it a bad performance? It's so watchable. It's so interesting. But I can't tell whether this guy's a good actor. And so I finally research it. And of course, he's a pop star. <laughs> and it had been a pop star for a long time. It did have a certain similarity to watching performances by if we want to reference Japanese cinema again, both David Bowie and Ryuichi Sakamoto. I don't know if they're good actors, but I know I'm watching compelling performances. Wow. And uh, so that's uh, Masaharu Fukuyama. And, uh, oh, by the way, he played us in on part two tonight. Oh, fantastic. So uh, what have you been watching? Well, I just saw uh, something quite spectacular, actually. It was, um, you know, you know, uh, me and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. The restraining order is still in effect. <laughs> still in effect, sadly. But uh, no, he uh, has a new movie out that um, uh, it seems to be filmed just in um, uh, 2021, according to this. And uh, it's uh, the life of uh, an uh, illustrated news illustrator. Uh, a young eccentric uh, guy by the name of Louis Wayne. And it's called The Electrification of Louis Wayne. And he does an incredible performance of kind of a, a illustrator who's, you know, clearly eccentric. But then after wife dies, spoiler alert, uh, he goes mad. And it's a, a, a true life's tale of this guy who was uh, beloved. His work was beloved. However, he failed to put a copyright on his cute little cats that he drew. He drew cats with big eyes. And uh, so they were published all over the world and repeatedly published in the UK. And he didn't see a cent from it. So uh, it's sort of uh, uh, tragic in that form. But uh, boy, boy, I got to say, Benedict, he really uh, he really knocks it out of the park on that movie. He has been very busy. I mean, his film, The Courier, came out during the pandemic um i'm surprised this is the one that you were talking about this is available on prime and i thought for sure you were going to reference the one on netflix that i think is getting a lot of awards push uh the power of the dog 
from oh. Jane Campion, right? The oh, Oscar right. Yeah. Uh, winning filmmaker of the the piano. So, uh yeah, he's been he's got a couple of films, uh a couple of dogs in the hunt, uh, award <laughs> season wise. So, right? you are highly recommending The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne on Amazon Prime. I am. What about uh, television series here? I've uh, watched uh, a couple things that everybody has been talking about. Uh, One one is uh, Mike White's satirical comedy drama, The White Lotus, uh, already renewed for a second season. I think it was renewed, wow, before even the finale of this six-episode miniseries dropped. Now, have you watched The White Lotus? I have not, and I see it uh, come up all the time, and yet here I am not watching it. I don't I'm, know why. I am surprised. I mean, this is, like I said, a satirical uh, series. I would think satire would be right up your uh, your alley. Up my alley. And yeah. uh, uh, so much of it uh, w- not only wonderfully written by Mike Wright, White, but wonderfully improvised by the like of uh, the peerless Jennifer Coolidge, who just gets a role so worthy of her talents. There is a scene that apparently she improvised over several days because she was so seasick out on a boat where she tries to dispose of her mother's ashes. And you will not see a better, more disturbing, more funny, more sad scene in any television program, uh, I would imagine, for many, many years. Um, No one in this show is likable, and yet you like how unlikable they all are. It's one of those shows. (laughs) It really, uh, the first episode is a tough watch because everybody's so unlikable. But you do get immersed in it. It was filmed on location at an actual resort, though not the resort that is named, but at an actual resort. And of course, filmed during pandemic, so they were locked down and couldn't leave. The interiors you'll find are all shot in sound stages on sets, but it's a little bit misleading because they built those sets inside the buildings at the resort. So oh. some of the architecture is still the resort itself, but they built faux walls because they couldn't repaint walls and and couldn't do new textures and they designed every interior to represent what they were trying to express about the character who uses that space either because they're staying in it it's their their suite at the resort or it's their office or it's their spa etc and uh so you're really immersed in who these characters are and boy that first episode it's a little too much because i don't want to spend time on vacation with any of these people but what (laughs) what if you do get stuck on an island vacation with these people but boy by the second episode it really has its claws into you and you start to really look forward to the next one and and knowing at the same time it tells its story in six episodes Oh, oh! So that's an easy one to to take. Yeah, season two to, uh, will be with a totally different cast and at a totally different property owned by the White Lotus Resort Company. The other thing that I watched that everybody's talking about, Dave Chappelle, the closer. Oh, you did? Yes, finally. Well, I was going to hold off for a long time, which is what I tend to do with Dave Chappelle's stuff, because he has such a gravitational pull right now that it's almost impossible to come to any of his works uh, as a blank slate. Um, Right. uh, 
Yeah, uh, you can't just stumble on, hey, I saw this comic named Dave Chappelle. But because of the larger social issues and, and the conversations around those issues, and as you've heard me say, the reactions to the reactions, which tends <laughs> to be where we live right now, I felt it was important for me to watch and, and try to discern. But I will say that I don't think it's one of his better concerts, just from a comedy standpoint. I, right. I I do just get a little tired of him just running us through the greatest hits collection of the beefs he's had. <laughs> right. um, it almost feels like a primer of, oh, okay, so I should go watch that one to hear the routine that caused this reaction. Um <laughs> But I will say, as I come away from it, you know, yeah, there are there are there are f- things that he says that uh, make me cringe. There are things that he says that disappoint me. Um, but you know, this is going to be true of any conversation with just about anyone that you have. To me, ultimately, it, the conversation about the closer shouldn't be one about wokeness and cancel culture. It right. should be about how. Both his performance in it and people's reaction to it and his reaction to that reaction all fits under the heading of the bigger the reaction, the older the material we're dealing with. Ah, oh, fascinating. He spends so much time trying to make fun of the idea that his critics accuse him of punching down. Right. The response to this comedy special was, why do you have to punch down? And he spent so much time in it talking about how he's not capable of punching down. That's flaw one, right? Of course you are. We all are. Anybody who's in a position of power can punch down. He seems not to understand sometimes that he is in a position of power. Sometimes when it benefits him to admit that he does have FU money and fame, he will embody the power he has. But other times when he's accused of punching down, he will quickly play, how am I possibly capable of punching down when I am part of an oppressed community? Right. Um, You know who else used that defense? OJ. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So we're all capable of being bullies is is the point. And people who get bullied and Dave Chappelle knows bullying. Of course he does, Um, both within his community and as an individual and in his career. But people who get bullied are more likely to become bullies at times. It's learned behavior. And I think uh, it's all okay, and it all can be worked through, except when our reaction that is speaking to long-standing material tends to overwhelm all conversation. And I think that's really the case here. I think, understandably, people are triggered by things that he said, and I think a conversation could have happened uh, that could have made made it not all go away, but could have certainly led down a more holistic and healthy um, avenue. But everybody got into their big reactions of old material, and for him, it is this issue of nothing triggers him like being accused of punching down. Right. Interesting. That was... Uh... Whose joke was that about wasn't uh, O.J. 
wasn't a, uh, a thing about race. It was a thing about celebrity. And he got off because he was a celebrity. And that made all the difference. So, so yeah, that's always the thing. Fame has its own uh, set of issues that you can either realize or deny, uh, depending on how you, you want to recontextualize any of your experiences, right? Dave Chappelle, you are one man standing up there with a mic, with a bully puppet pulpit, with a lot of fame and a lot of money. You do have the ability to punch down. He's asking, how could I possibly punch down while standing elevated above thousands <laughs> well, of people? You know, exactly. The power of the microphone as a stand-up comic, too. Yeah, you have that. So that's a good point. You know what else I'm watching, by the way? What's that? You might like this. From 1980, uh, in Romania, there was a cop show called Comrade Detective that uh, uh, I think Channing Tatum uh, led the lead. They, they got through tons of negotiations. The original uh, film, they've remastered it all and dubbed it into English with uh, big names like uh, Channing Tatum, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's doing a voice, so is Nick Offerman. And uh, it's it's serious but so laughable uh but it's like this gritty buddy cop uh, romanian cop uh, series that's uh, showing on uh, amazon amazon prime and i'm kind of hooked on it for for its its uh hilariousness and, and cheesy 1980s references um uh to you know there seems to be a murderer about bucharest that uh, is trying to kill cops and uh it's uh, it's really kind of fun. So I don't understand. So right. are you saying that this is a vintage show from the 1980s that has now been dubbed into English decades later? That's right. And remastered. So it looks great because uh, I guess they were filming just on 35 millimeter stock back then. And and it's uh, pro uh, pre fall pre-fallen the wall so it's all very much uh, russian propaganda and we are comrades and uh, you know the west is is uh, influencing all evil and corruption in our lovely city of bucharest and we should you know keep together as comrades so so it's pro-communist anti-western cop show that's now dubbed in english with big names i mean holy smokes uh, who else you got in this jenny slate um, uh, Chloe Seven Sevigny, however you pronounce her name, last name. But uh, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm but, this but, thing. but I but I'm still confused. So was it really shot in the 1980s, or yes. it was shot to look like it no, was it, in the? This 80s. was what all of Romania was watching in the 1980s during the Reagan era, and and uh, I don't know who saw it. Somebody was shooting over in Eastern Europe saw a rerun of this. And thought this is incredible. Okay, no, 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 then, no, no, no. So yes, that's what they pitched originally. They looked into dubbing over real Eastern Bloc television shows, but the the creators of it, uh, including executive producer Channing Tatum, realized it would be easier to just make their own show rather than procuring rights. So it is it is a modern production, uh, right? Made to look old, and then uh, making but it's the it original scripts, isn't it? No, it's it's all written by the these people, yeah. And um, 
Yeah, it's it's written by Brian Gatewood and Alex Tanaka. It's a modern show. Um, yes. It was filmed in Romania. Um, yeah, in a modern using local actors. Yeah, using local and then and then dubbed into English. But it's all been modern and it was all part of the 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 plan. But it sounds fantastic. Let's just we're ad libbing to ending. Right. <laughs> Don't we all? We didn't. We didn't even uh, open up the morgue. God, I've got oh, yeah. four dozen bodies, including Mort Saul. We should have. We should have talked about Mort Saul. All right. Oh, um, uh, well, that can be the bonus episode we have to record this week, and all an all morgue edition of. I mean, there's worse <laughs> worse ideas of worse ideas have happened. Belated spoiler alert. Odyssey, dare to wonder. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Monday, November 8th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Jason Moser. Good to see you. Good to see you. How's everything going? It's going all right. Another busy week ahead of us. We've got the latest in the war on cash. We've got allocation strategies we're going to dig into, but we're going to start with the stock of the day. When the market closed on Friday, the trade desk's market cap was $32 billion and change. As of right now, the trade desk market cap is north of $40 billion because third quarter profits and revenue were higher than expected. I knew the digital advertising business was going well. Is it going this well? Is it going stock <laughs> popping 27% well? Uh, well, it, it seems it seems like it is. I mean, it's 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 a better, I think, environment for some than others. Uh, it, it, you know, certainly, we've talked a lot recently about the advertising space and particularly how Apple's privacy changes have impacted that in the the realm of social media. Right, companies like Twitter and Facebook and Snap. Um, the thing, the thing with the trade desk is, is really, I think it's it's about the connected TV opportunity. I think that's what's so encouraging about this business, what's so so exciting about this business. Um, if you remember, the trade desk they provide a demand side platform, what's called a DSP, that customers use to purchase advertising space, right? And so this is a self service cloud based platform. Ad buyers can create, manage, optimize uh, digital advertising campaigns that are very data driven. And it crosses formats, whether it's display, video, audio. So they really are doing a very good job, I think, number one, pursuing a massive market opportunity in advertising, but also with a, they're doing a very good job taking a very data-driven approach and building the tools that continue to enable that. Um, and so, you, you, you know, I like to always look 
to see if companies are exceeding their own expectations. Um, and, and if we look at it just a quarter ago, last quarter, they called for revenue of at least $282 million, adjusted EBITDA of approximately $100 million. Well, did they deliver, Chris? Indeed, they did, with record third quarter revenue of $301.1 million and adjusted EBITDA of $122.7 million. So it's always nice to see teams exceeding their own expectations. Uh, then it becomes the question of how or why are they doing it? And I think that really falls back to this this data-driven platform that they've built and this massive market opportunity in connected TV that they're pursuing. What do you say to investors out there who look at this stock and say, I get all that, but holy cow, is this expensive? This is not I... a cheap stock. <laughs> No, no, it's not. I mean, it's 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 certainly very understandable. I mean, now I, I think, you know, one thing I will say to keep in mind. I mean, this is a profitable business, right? So this isn't one of those tech stocks that we're still kind of waiting on that path to profitability. I mean, this is a business that actually does make money. But to your point, I mean, the valuation. I mean, it's trading north of a hundred times earnings. I mean, the price to sales is now in the forty-ish times. Uh, range. I mean, any, any, by any metric, no, this is not traditionally a cheap stock. Now, it, it doesn't really look like, uh, it, it doesn't feel like it ever has really been a quote-unquote good deal or a cheap stock. Uh, and I think that, that goes to a number of reasons. I mean, their, their position in the market, the technology that they've built, uh, the market opportunity that they're pursuing. And then you look at just the numbers. I mean, customer retention remained over 95% during the quarter, as it has for the past seven years. So, I mean, they have a great track record of just customer retention there. Um, and, and, and also, you know, we talk a lot about privacy and sort of the way the advertising market is looking to address uh, what is sort of a fragmented response. And we talk a lot about Unified ID 2.0 or UID Two with a uh, trade desk. And this is this is their version of of uh tackling that privacy concern while also being able to, to be as productive as possible with the data to continue to get more more traction and buy-in there. Um, they they launched their new trading platform called Solimar uh, in, in July, which is is uh, garnering a positive response. And, and I think, honestly, you go back to just the way customers are spending on their platform. I think if you look at 2020, more than 1,000 brands spent at least $100,000 on connected TV on Trade Desk's platform. Now, that, that number, I think it's safe to say, will be higher for 2021, and we'll find out soon enough. Uh, but the brand spending more than $1 million on their platform in 2020 more than doubled from the previous year. So that, that's another key performance indicator to keep in mind. Um, and, and then just to get back to the market opportunity, Particularly when you look at the video on demand, the ad supported video on demand. So, not just subscription video, but really the ad supported, which it, it does feel like that globally speaking, that's where the puck is kind of going because it's such a compelling value proposition for so many consumers. I mean, Moffat Nathanson has data out there that says that uh, that, that ad supported video on demand market is going to grow from $4.5 billion in 2020 to about $18 billion in 2025. So you take those forecasts with a grain of salt, even if you discount it, it's still very meaningful for a business that just crossed over that $1 billion revenue mark uh, recently. Uh, certainly seems like they are calling for uh, continued growth here for the remainder of the year, and, and I would think on into 2022 and beyond. 
Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Got a question from Brian in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. He writes, I'm a growth investor. I generally hold stocks for five years or more. I don't want my portfolio to turn into a mini mutual fund with a hundred of my favorite stock picks. So I limit myself to 30 companies max. This also helps me be disciplined about buying and selling because in order to buy a new company, I need to believe it will outperform one of the 30 companies I already own. If it's not too personal, how many individual stocks do you each own and why that number? I can't believe Brian is writing such a personal question. I mean, that's I mean, just outrageous. You know, no, I'm kidding. It's a great question. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's an interesting approach that he's taken. And we've you and I have both been around long enough to certainly meet with Motley Fool members at events, talk to investors in different forums, and we find people like Brian. We also find people who are looking to just buy shares of companies that they think are going to outpace the market. And if that number gets upwards of 100, uh, so be it. Well, Brian, that is very personal. I mean, you know, at least buy me dinner first before we, we <laughs> take this to the next level, I guess, right? I mean, I... I you know what? You, I, you I road kidding, trip out to Minnesota and he'll, he'll buy you a coffee. <laughs> hey, we had a full event out there that one year. I thought that was really a lot of fun. I think uh, I'd definitely get back to Minnesota in a heartbeat. Remember that baseball game we went to out there? Um, I didn't yeah, get, so I, I didn't I, get I, to go on that trip, but thanks for bringing that up. Oh, you weren't there. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. Well, maybe uh, I'd say maybe we'll get a chance to do it again, but it's <laughs> it's feeling like that that isn't going to happen. <laughs> um, all right, back to the question. Um, I, I, I like this question a lot. I think it's really good because it is the point is well taken. You don't want to build up this portfolio with a hundred plus positions. And all of a sudden, now you, you you kind of feel like this little version of a mutual fund. I mean, that that's that's a reasonable concern. Now, I, everybody's got to sort of figure out their own line. And, and personally, I have always felt a little bit more comfortable running a concentrated portfolio. And I think a lot of that is just kind of based on you know what I do for a living. I feel like I I know this stuff pretty well, and and uh, and so it's not it, it's just not something that has bothered me as much. Now, with that said, I went through and counted this up. And so today, I have 35 separate positions in 34 different companies, and, and the variance there is because of Under Armour. I have those those two classes of shares for Under Armour, um, but I have a total of 35 positions, 34 different companies. That does not include my ownership in the Motley Fool, right? We as as employees of the Motley Fool are also shareholders of the Motley Fool, so I, that is that is. You know, you can add that to the mix, but it's it's different, right? It's not a publicly traded company. So, to me, actually, thirty five is a little high. Uh, the the reason why it's gotten to that point recently is just because I found some businesses that I really like that I had long wanted to own, and finally found some opportunities to invest in them. So I did it. Uh, I I feel like if you can keep it somewhere in that thirty to fifty range, that to me seems most reasonable. I think the more the more sleep you're losing at night, and the more the more you need to to increase that holding uh, level. But but I think anywhere in that thirty to fifty range is is nice. I, I try not to be too hard and fast with it. 
And, and again, I mean, it, it wasn't all that long ago where I think I was probably at 28 or 29, but recently there are just some exciting businesses that I, I wanted to, to follow and be a part of. And so I added, added positions and, and, you know, that's okay. But I, I typically view it anywhere between that 30 and 50. And, and I like at least that you're deliberating it, right? It really does. It makes you be even more picky and really put these things under the microscope and make sure you understand what you're buying before you do buy it. Uh, because, because yeah, that, that's the correct uh, view is taking that five plus year time horizon to really give those holdings a chance to grow and do their thing. Yeah, the the mindset uh, that Brian has is is fantastic. I also sort of counted up my own uh, individual uh, stock holdings. I have sixty, but yeah. that uh, the concentration is really in about thirty. Um, the the reason I have yeah. sixty is um, due to uh, inheriting shares, uh, you know, a couple of shares of a, a bunch of different companies. And so that's, uh, and for me, it's uh, like you, Jason, I don't have a hard and fast number. For me, it's more along the lines of, well, what is my bandwidth for following these companies? I sleep better at night knowing the companies that I own, keeping tabs on them. At some point, and I don't know what that point is, at some point, the number just gets to be too much. You know, and so yeah. that's that's why for me it's, you know, it's it's really in that thirty to fifty range. It, it it can get to be too much, and I think some folks will will view that and think they just don't feel comfortable not knowing what they own, and and I think that's very reasonable. I mean, if you're looking through your portfolio and you say, oh man, yeah, I forgot I even own that. Maybe. I mean, it, everybody's going to feel a little bit differently, I guess, about that. Some people look at that and they think, well, that's just great, right? I'm taking my, my mind and, and, and devoting my energy towards other things. The whole reason you diversify is so you don't have to sit there and hem and haw over every individual holding. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like the way you think about it. After the closing bell today, PayPal is going to issue its third quarter report. What are you going to be looking for? Well, so far, this has not been that great of a year for PayPal the stock. Uh, if you look at the stock's performance, I think the stock is essentially flat, with the market up something like twenty-five percent. Um, I, I, I would not, I would not consider that uh, an issue for the business, though. I think you know, that this is a company that's at the vanguard of fintech. It's very easy to let your mind wander because it's gotten so big so fast, and there are all these smaller neat ideas out there that are just coming to market. But really, PayPal, it remains one that is blazing the trail. Uh, so, I mean, a couple of things to keep in mind. The key performance indicators for a business like this, total payment volume, of course, just getting an idea of the dollars that are flowing through that network. They're calling for $1.25 trillion in payment volume this year, Chris, maybe even more. Which is just phenomenal to think of, and and if you look at a company like Square that just, I mean, I think they're around 125 billion dollars. Uh, it goes to show you not only how much bigger PayPal is at this point, but it also speaks to the opportunity that's out there for a company like Square to capture. So I think that's encouraging. Uh, Total transactions always a good indicator of engagement. Uh, people using the app, um, I think. You know, one thing we're hearing more and more about is this super app, right? They mentioned it seven times in last quarter's call. It's an area of, of, of immense focus for them as they start to roll this out. Uh, I mean, the idea basically is to have just kind of like this one-stop shop where people can get all of their uh, financial house in order, and and I think that's neat to think about from from a big picture perspective. I I wonder. I wonder how that'll work because they're talking about something like 25 new capabilities that they're putting into this super app. Uh, 
given that they've got PayPal and Venmo and Zoom, I mean, those are three very uh, easy ways to move money around the world. And, and adding ancillary services to those platforms, I think, could be very valuable over time. Um, and, and, and speaking of Venmo, you, obviously you want to you want to pay attention to Venmo as a part of the, of that total payment volume. I think they uh, brought in fifty eight billion dollars uh, in total payment volume for for the overall business last quarter, and Venmo revenue grew seventy percent. Uh, and then I think you know the only other thing to me that's that's interesting, at least just from a storyline perspective, is just the buy now pay later space, because PayPal has made I think some pretty strong investments in this line that are are paying off. I mean, since they launched their buy now pay later feature, they've processed over three and a half billion dollars in total payment volume, and and more than one and a half billion dollars of that came in in the second quarter alone. Uh, they have merchants who are buying in. Uh, it is now launched in Australia, fully deployed, which I think is noteworthy, just because Square obviously paid a king's ransom to 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 get uh, Afterpay under its wing. So uh, interesting to see the competitive jockeying there in the buy now pay later space. And um, I mean, you know, it'd be interesting. I, I'm sure there are going to be some questions on the call about Pinterest. Uh, I would, I would think so. <laughs> several weeks, this is rumor out there about Pinterest, and I mean, I can see the puts and takes for for that deal happening or not happening. So any anything that management has there, I think would just be. Uh, fun to learn more about, but you look at the stock today, the forecasting around four dollars and seventy cents uh, in earnings per share for the year, which puts shares around fifty uh, fifty times. Uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call that cheap, but again, you look at PayPal, much like a trade desk. I mean, this is a business that really is blazing the trail on its space, and the market tends to pay up for those types of businesses. It's not a cheap stock, but if they want to look like a cheap stock, they can go hang out with the trade desk. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we got him on the same show, Chris. Exactly. Jason Bozer, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on The Motley Fool, may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Please leave us a review on iTunes. be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.